Hi, friends. It's Vin Scully. It's time for Dr. Clapper. In sports, there's winning and losing and getting injured. That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr. Clapper is the former head of orthopedic surgery at Cedar sinai The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, presented by Cedar sinai Hey, Dr. Clapper. How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. <laughs> yes, Doc, I love your show. Now, here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. What a great topic today. Topic is having a true moral compass. Why is that the topic today? Because at 8:15, I cannot wait. Calling in is Frank Scaturo, who's a world authority on President Ulysses S. Grant. I read a great article about how Frank took it upon himself to make sure Grant's tomb in New York City would be cleaned up and taken care of by the federal government because Ulysses S. Grant was probably one of our greatest presidents. Really? I never heard of that. And then I learned more of why it's such a passion for Frank Scaturo. Why did he invest so much time and effort in understanding and making us all understand what Ulysses S. Grant is? Well, guess who Grant was? He was the general who won the Civil War. And when Abraham Lincoln passed all those laws to abolish slavery, he then gets assassinated. The president who succeeds, the vice president who now becomes the president under Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, starts to undo all the Lincoln policies to abolish slavery. And it's Ulysses S. Grant who says no. We're going to do exactly what Lincoln said. This incredible moral compass that lived inside Grant. He hired more African-Americans to the government, more Jews to the government. This was a true good soul. But it was not easy. And he had a fight. And it made me think all week. You know how much I love the world of art, the world of sports, the world of surgery. Where do we see the Ulysses S. Grant in sports? Because it's not just Lincoln. Lincoln needed Grant to make it happen. It takes two to tango. You can't do it yourself. Well, in sports, it was Jackie Robinson in 1947 coming to baseball. But the only way that happens is if Branch Rickey makes it happen, who owned the Dodgers, who had this moral compass, that no, I've got to right this wrong. Listen to Jackie Robinson himself talking about Branch Rickey. I work for a great guy. I don't think anybody um, could have done the job had it not been for Mr. Rickey. He was constantly advising and guiding, and I had so much confidence in him. I would have jumped off the bridge if he told me to do it. That's uh, that's how much I believed in him. And he was uh, a man that was sincere and dedicated and willing to lend that helping hand that's so needed today in terms of the problems that we face in everyday life. Without Jackie Robinson, the Dodgers do not have Dave Roberts or Mookie Betts playing. He's the one, but he didn't do it alone. Every time you hear Jackie Robinson talk, he always says we or our fight. 
Well, there are times certainly when we thought it wouldn't work, but with the numbers of people that helped, yeah. we certainly thought that things would go as they have now and even a lot further in terms of the front office and the managerial role and that kind of thing. But certainly baseball has got, got grown considerably and we're quite proud of the role that we played in it. It's incredible now to think of a sport that big that was all, uh, all non-black. Yes. I mean, uh, so many uh, black stars in baseball now. Well, you can't even count them today. It's amazing to me. I keep reading about certain ballplayers, and I, one day I look on television, and he's black. There's no longer a mention of Joe Blow, Negro ballplayer, this kind of thing, which is as it should be. I think they should be judged solely on their abilities out there, and the race shouldn't have anything to do with it. This is from an interview from 1972. A few months later, Jackie Robinson, at age 53, is going to pass away from bad heart. But what he says is so prophetic. But what strikes me is you can hear that strength in his voice. Listen to Dick Cavett ask him, well, who's the worst guy? What they yell at you? In this beautiful, gracious, humble way, Jackie Robinson's describing some of the most egregious things that can happen. You name them in terms of race, and they were yelled. Everything it was quite vicious. I think Philadelphia Phillies, with Ben Chapman, was perhaps the most vicious of any of the people in terms of name-calling. The team members? Some members of the team, but there was a fellow by the name of Lee Hanley on that ball club that came down to first base when I was there and apologized for the Phillies. He just says, I just want you to know all of us don't feel that way, but it's been led by the manager, and many of the guys are doing it simply because of instructions, I would have to imagine. But it did give me a good feeling to know that in spite of what was coming out of the Philly dugout, one guy would come down and say he's awfully Mm. Sorry, and, and actually what they did was to sort of solidify the Brooklyn Ball Club because Mr. Ricky told me one of the things he said early was that when your ball club starts to take up for you in certain situations, our battle is most of the way won. And, mm-hmm. and I think that Philly incident started the Dodgers to kind of mold as a unit. Was that the worst, Philly? Yes, yeah. Philly was the worst. Uh, yeah. Ben mm-hmm. Chapman was quite vicious. He wasn't only vicious as far as black people were concerned. I think he was anti-everything. Oh. Unbelievable. Where in the world of art, just like Jackie Robinson talks about a battle, and we're going to talk about General Ulysses S. Grant, a battle, the Civil War. Where's that battle in the world of art and entertainment? Well, listen to these two characters, the brainchild of Keenan Ivory Wayans. And now Public Access presents Men on Films. Blaine Edwards, and I'm Antoine Merriweather, and welcome to Men on Films. We're going to be reviewing the latest films from a male point of view. First up is that controversial movie, Do the Right Thing. Now, I really like little Spike Lee's courage in making this film. I especially like the way he mixed the racial tension with the violence in order to give his message, do the right thing. Come on out the closet. Don't be afraid to be who you is. Black, white, whatever. Mm-hmm. Ain't that the truth, Ruth? Uh, <laughs> well, it was not so easy to make in living color happen in the early 90s. He started out as a stand-up comedian and then made a movie called I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker. And that led to some recognition by Fox. Listen to Keenan Ivory Wayans tell the story of how he had to fight hard to make that moral compass in him ring true. 
the first call I got was from Fox. I go to the meeting, and it's not the film department, it's the TV department. They had come to see the movie. The film guys didn't even come. And so I was disappointed at first, and then they explained to me, look, we got this new network we're doing, blah, 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 and they said, we really want to push the edge, and, you know, we loved your movie, and, you know, we would love for you to create something for us, and, and you know, you can do whatever you want to do. Yeah, you could do whatever you want to do, but don't do what you want to do. I was like, really? And they're like, yeah, you have total freedom. So I left, and I thought about it. I was like, okay, I got some. And I went back. I, I pitched it to him. I pitched, uh, <laughs> let's see, the the Men on Film. Which you just heard. Wrath of Farrakhan uh, and the Homeboy Shopping Network. <laughs> and uh, they said, yeah, let's do a pilot. And we did the pilot. Okay, now here's where it starts getting interesting. Talk about the battle. And what was funny was... That was the pilot that almost never got seen. Uh, in the last minute, Barry Diller was horrified. Like he, um, not horrified in that he hated it because actually when we did Men on Film, they wanted us to take it out and before we ever shot it. And I said, have him come down to the set. Yeah, he basically said, no, I'm not. So he came, Barry came down to the set, and uh, he his, I think, one of the things he was worried about was, would gay people be offended? And that's why I invited him to come to the set. And he stood off on the side, and he watched the sketch. And when the guys started going, and he heard the audience, it wasn't just laughter. Like, people were, like, stomping their feet. <laughs> And then he started laughing. And then when they were done, he just threw up his hand. They left. He was like, do it. Right. Jackie Robinson needed Branch Rickey. Abe Lincoln needed Ulysses S. Grant. Keenan Ivory Waynes needed Barry Dindler and one other guy who also said no. So Barry let us shoot it. But then it, became, then it came time to air it. And that's when... Everybody got nervous. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> and uh, Peter Chernin, uh, who was head of uh, network, sat me down and he said, we're really nervous about airing this. <laughs> he goes, undoubtedly, it is great and funny. He goes, but we just don't think we can air this. That's right. He said, what I'd like to do is I'd like to take out the following sketches, and he wanted to take out the Homeboy Shopping Network, Men on Film, and Wrath of Farrakhan. And he said, you know, I'd like to air a tamer version, and then when we build an audience, you know, we can push the boundaries. And I said, I don't want to do that. Yeah, that's right. Because you have a moral compass, Keenan Ivory Waynes, and they ain't going to get in your way. That toughness in Jackie Robinson. I'm going to do it, buddy. I said, I want to kick the door and guns blazing. I said, if they like it, 
they like it, they don't. I'm good with that. I said, but I don't want to trick the audience. I want them to know, you know, what we're doing. He sat there and he was just like, because <sighs> okay, it's all right. Is that what you want to do? See ya. And they aired it. The rest is history. <laughs> the rest is history, Keenan. But listen to this about the word revolution. You heard Jackie Robinson use the word battle, just like General Grant. Now we're going to talk about revolution, which is the Civil War. Only this revolution was on TV in America in the 90s. They hired a research group, and it was the funniest thing. I, I met with the research people, and I swear it, it was the CIA. It was, I mean, it was like... Uh, it was a kind of like stiffness and suit and tie that you just go, this is not your average white executive right here. This this guy is on another level. And I'll, I'll tell you a piece of the conversation that really kind of made me go, oh, this is a little more research than you would normally do. They told me about the research they had done and they didn't ask people if they thought things were funny. They asked them, how did it make them feel? Right. It's like, wow. And then they asked me some questions. And they asked me, so what do you, you know, what do you think the show is? <laughs> you know, what, what do you think? Like, they wanted to know my feelings about the show. And I said. He uses the wrong word. He says revolutionary. You know, I, I think the show is fresh and it's new. I, I think it's revolutionary. And they say, what do you mean revolutionary? <laughs> I was like, uh, not that kind of revolutionary. <laughs> I just mean, you know, taking the format and changing it up a little bit, you know. And then those guys left and I guess they gave their approval. So it was a lot of steps to get to actually getting on the air. God bless you, Keenan Ivory Waynes, for fighting the good fight, for having that true moral compass. And God bless you, Branch, Ricky, and Jackie Robinson. And coming up next, we're going to learn how to really feel the right way about one of the most underrated presidents ever, the Jackie Robinson, the Keenan Ivory Waynes of our country, Ulysses S. Grant. Coming up next, we'll get into it. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show here on 710 ESPN. Hey, it's Mace. You know, there is no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. And don't miss Mason in Ireland back Monday at 1 on 710 ESPN. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Soon to be a major motion picture. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Without a good hip, you ain't hopping, that's for sure. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Great Van Morrison. I'm so excited. Joining me now is the great Frank Scaturo. Frank, thanks so much for joining us this morning. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thanks, Dr. Clapper. Great to be here. So, in a crazy way, because I love art, I'm a sculptor, because I love surgery, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, and I love sports, we're on ESPN. The topic is about a true 
moral compass that some people possess. Branch Rickey with Jackie Robinson, Keenan Ivory Waynes and Barry Diller, and Ulysses S. Grant carrying out what Abraham Lincoln designed, except the guy who took over for Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, tried to undo it. Frank Scaturro, teach us. Teach us about the real legacy of one of the greatest presidents who ever lived and where your fascination with it came from. Thanks. Well, yes, you're, you're talking, when you're talking about Ulysses S. Grant, you're talking about someone who played a towering role in events that were of superlative importance in American history. I mean, this was the preeminent leader of the nation during the Civil War Reconstruction era. That's a period that constituted in many ways a second founding. And Grant had the consummate American story. He was someone who rose from humble origins and by his abilities, his character, his hard work, his devotion to country, and his moral compass, he brings all of those attributes with him. He becomes the principal author of Union Victory during the country's bloodiest conflict. And while we have been, you know, uh, taught for generations that, of course, Union Victory was about saving the nation, making sure that the country survived intact, and of course, it almost didn't survive intact Mm -hmm. for its first century, there was something else that was going on. Grant's military victory secured the emancipation of slaves, that the Emancipation Proclamation authorized, well, that had to be enforced. It was enforced by military victory. Mm. And Grant then follows that. This is something that was really uh, overlooked for many, many years, especially during the 20th century. He follows his military career with a monumental political career that worked to ensure a new era of equality for all Americans, regardless of color. Hmm. And it was a period that really included the most profound changes to our constitutional architecture since the initial founding of the country. Hmm. Over the span of his 16 years of service, from the start of the Civil War to the end of his presidency, Grant was the principal champion of those values that define one of the most formative uh, periods that our country's uh, ever had in, in its history. So we talk about Lincoln, and of course Lincoln's uh, legacy was emancipation and the 13th Amendment that, uh, that freed the slaves. Uh, that is how the Constitution uh, elevated the Emancipation Proclamation into something that applied to slavery throughout the country. And as I mentioned, that was enabled by Grant's military victory. Well, that's followed by a 14th Amendment that guarantees the equal protection of the laws that uh, Grant had worked to enforce as general in chief uh, during the years that followed uh, in Reconstruction. As you mentioned, Lincoln was uh, succeeded by Andrew Johnson, who did everything that he could to embolden the former Confederate states Mm. to try to suppress the former slaves and keep them in a status that very closely resembled slavery. Mm. And so during this period, 1866-1867, Congress is responding to this imposition of a new caste system of the white codes that several of these southern states had passed in 1865. Well, they're trying to pass civil rights laws to... Mm change all of that, to say that everyone shall have the same right to buy, sell, lease, contract, sue, and so forth that that white people have. 
that's the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and that passes only by overriding Andrew Johnson's veto. He vetoes every measure that comes before him virtually that would advance civil rights. And Congress proposes the 14th Amendment uh, in large part to make sure that equal protection and privileges or immunities, something a phrase we don't talk about very much, but that was a big part of the, uh, the guarantee of equality that was uh, envisioned by these second founders, they wanted that to become a part of the Constitution and be a fixed part of our law that was immune from changing congressional majorities. And Grant, even though he's general in chief, uh, he is someone who is he's evolving in his attitudes, to be sure, uh, on what the status should be of former slaves. But as he sees the recalcitrance in southern states, hmm. he sees the undoing of what he he views as the true meaning of union victory. And he pushes for the 14th Amendment's passage. He's just trying to carry out what Abraham Lincoln really wanted to do, as these Southern guys are trying to trash it. Frank, before we... I I just got to go off topic for a second, because, you know, my life of combining all these worlds, we all here, we are the Laker station here at ESPN, we all got to see what made Kobe Bryant different than every other player. Before I get really into the meat of the, I could talk to you for hours. I could tell already. What is it that that this General Grant, from Appomattox to the Mexican American War, the guy was an amazing general. I want to ask you this question. He's the Kobe Bryant. He's the Michael Jordan of being a general. What is it in your mind that he did that other generals couldn't do? How did he outfox? Is there an example of he thought? X when everybody else thought Y? I mean, how did he, what did he do? Can you give us an example of what made him such an amazing superlative general? Sure. Well, he did have this meteoric rise as a general. No one expected he would occupy the position he ultimately did. And when the Civil War begins, the, the scenario is there is a a state of strategic inertia in the Western theater of the war. That's where Grant initially is operating. Mm -hmm. He only reads in the newspapers in August of 1861 that he's been promoted to brigadier general, but even (laughs) then he ranked 35th among the Union's generals. There were a bunch of other generals in that theater uh, at that time, like John Fremont, Henry Halleck, Don Carlos Buell, uh, Mm -hmm. among others, who had more friends in important places, certainly, than Grant had, who would have appeared to be better candidates to win the West. But Grant was someone who understood the way they did not, the importance of dynamic action, uh, the value of keeping the initiative, of retaining an awareness of the enemy's weaknesses, Mm. and of having the courage that is needed to prevent one's own setbacks from making a bad situation worse. Mm. So, talk about examples. So at Fort Donaldson, February 1862, uh, Grant finds his right is practically shattered by a Confederate attack, but he sees opportunity in this apparent disaster. I mean, he realizes that his men who are trying to take this fort, they were pretty badly demoralized, but he said the enemy must be more so because he attempted to force his way out of the fort, but has fallen back. And now he said the one who attacks first now will be victorious. So Grant orders his left to attack. 
He stabilizes his right and he presses forward in all directions. He wins the battle and he secures the first of three surrenders of Confederate armies during the war, which is a feat that no other general on either side would match. Wow. And soon after that, you know, he has another amazing uh, victory at Shiloh after suffering a devastating first day uh, of battle where his troops are almost driven into the river. But where other generals would have conceded defeat and retreated, Grant realized that the first to attack the next day would win the battle. And that's mm. exactly what happened when he took the initiative again. Then you go on to you know the Vicksburg campaign. There was this impregnable fortress on the Mississippi River. I mean, that's what Vicksburg seems to be. Mm. Well, Grant was able to take the enemy by surprise. He mm. applied the elements of speed, surprise, and power. Mm. He had several diversionary movements to throw the enemy off, and he wins battle after battle within the state of Mississippi before he takes Vicksburg itself. So Lincoln sees how talented this general is. He brings him east. He makes him supreme commander of the Union armies. And there, as general-in-chief, Grant does something that none of his predecessors who commanded in the armies, uh, armies in the east had ever done. He conceives of and he implements a continental strategy. He recognizes that what's going on in one theater, in the Virginia theater, is not, can't be viewed in isolation from what's going on in Georgia or in Tennessee or in Mississippi. Mm. So he plans a continental strategy. He has a vision that no mm. other commander had. And in the course of doing this, too, he understands the connection between war and politics. He understands that Lincoln needs to be reelected in 1864 uh, in order to continue the war effort. He understands that it's necessary to target Confederate armies rather than cities. Uh, you, if you destroy the uh, enemy army, uh, cities will fall in due course. You have to throw away the Napoleonic playbook because weapons are evolving. Uh, the, the requirements of strategy are evolving. You have to strike at economic as well as military targets. And so wow. in the course of all of this, Grant becomes really the first of the world's truly modern generals. Mm. So he has all of these uh, attributes that other commanders did not have. And he winds up being able to do what uh, six commanders before him failed to do, and that was decisively defeat and disable Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. You know, at Gettysburg, Lee suffered a defeat, but the Army of the Potomac was not able to uh, follow that up by actually disabling the Army. Well, Grant takes the initiative within 48 hours of crossing the Rapidan River, which begins his confrontation with uh, Robert E. Lee. Frank, can you stay, Frank, can you, you're amazing. Can you stay on? I got to take a break to pay some bills. When we come back, I want the people to know who you are, where you came from, and then finally to teach us what's going on with Grant's tomb that's been such a passion for you and why in the world does he, uh, unlike other presidents, want to be buried in New York rather than in Washington, D.C. So hang on a second. We're talking to the great Frank Scuturo a real scholar about Ulysses S. Grant, a president that we all need to learn from about a moral compass. Coming up next on the Weekend Warriors Show here on 710 ESPN. 
Hey, it's Sedano. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday than when my guy, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m., Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Roberto Clapperio, a fish tacologist. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. I know the ins and outs of a fish taco. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. We're talking to the great Frank Scaturo. Frank, I just want you to know, I went to Columbia for college. I went to the medical school at the College of Physicians and Surgeons. And I get a magazine. And I read in this magazine all about you and how you saved the day for the Grant Tomb, which I visited when I was at the college and the medical school for all those years but the passion that this article describes that you have is what I mean, what do I know from talking to someone like you? This is like so outside my wheelhouse. But the passion is not passion in anything in life, and you have it. So before we go any further, Frank, who the hell are you? Where'd you grow up? What'd your father do for a living? How'd you wind up falling in love with Ulysses S. Grant? Well, I will tell you, I'm, I'm the son of an immigrant. My father came off the boat from Sicily, uh, 1950. Uh, he was nine years old. Uh, family settled in Brooklyn. And uh, soon after I was born, my family had lived in Queens in the outer boroughs, basically, when I was born. And then we moved a little bit east to Long Island. And I grew up in a typically a suburban household. My father uh, initially uh, fixed air conditioners and refrigerators and uh, eventually became the head of the maintenance department at uh, Bergdorf Goodman and uh, also at my high school, Chaminade, where uh, I attended uh, in the late 80s, graduated 1990, and then went to Columbia. So my parents really uh, did one thing that set me on this path that led to Ulysses S. Grant, and that was by an encyclopedia set, World Book Encyclopedia. This is in the days when you still had traveling encyclopedia sales. And <laughs> I went through the president's, oh, I went through all of the uh, encyclopedia volumes from A to Z, but the president's article really jumped out at me. And through an interest in the presidents and more broadly in American history, Grant jumps out at me among presidents as someone who seemed uniquely misunderstood and underappreciated. Now, this interest began when I was seven years old. That's when that they, when my parents got the encyclopedia. Wow. Set. But it was around 12 or 13 that uh, Grant seemed to be a real dilemma. Like how, when he's so ill-remembered as uh, president, does this square with what seems to be uh, a very different set of facts that people just were not recognizing. And so a few years later, I find myself at Columbia, and I'm a few blocks away from Grant's tomb. I already have what you can call the scholarly interest in Grant. So mm -hmm. I offer my services to the National Park Service to work at Grant's tomb and discover then that the monument is in really bad shape. It's being graffitied, homeless, or using it as a shelter and doing drugs there. And there's all sorts of uh, neglect, administrative uh, neglect by uh, National Park Service administrators who were then in charge. Uh, the tomb was not getting uh, the funds that it needed for basic maintenance. There was no security. It was being desecrated 
And so I found as I'm you know, pursuing my studies and I was a history and political science double major, I wrote uh, several papers on Grant and eventually an undergrad uh, history thesis, which would later be expanded into a short book called President Grant Reconsidered. Hmm. But while that was going on on the scholarly track, here is his final resting place a few blocks away from my dorm that's being treated quite literally like a sewer. Mm. So it was necessary. It, it's kind of, you don't tend to think of history as having such directly practical applications as uh, as this, but I realized that something had to be done at Grant's tomb. Mm. Uh, those of us who knew the situation intimately who were on staff, granted I was a volunteer most of the time, uh, but paid park rangers as well as volunteers were told, were told to stay silent, not to say anything about what was going on at the monument. And after butting my head against a bureaucratic wall for two and a half years, I finally went public with a whistleblowing report. And it was really thanks to uh, the media and also the congressional delegation that uh, then got involved that the tomb was restored. It was given security uh, in time for its centennial in 1997. Hmm. And then this undergrad thesis on Grant's presidency, uh, I published in 1998, a year after the uh, Grant's tomb centennial. And so even though as a day job, uh, I've been a lawyer, I went to uh, law school after uh, college. Uh, I've had outside of my day job, this ongoing uh, interest in scholarly interest in grants and the preservation interest and the preservation interest eventually manifested itself in a nonprofit that we got together. We, really, we revived a group called the Grant Monument Association that originally had built the site, administered it for uh, years until the Park Service took over. And now, I can't believe it's like 28 years later, we still have our Grant Monument Association. We've just marked uh, the 200th birthday of Ulysses S. Grant. And I'm glad to see that awareness of his presidency has been increasing. You know, we didn't uh, get to talk too much about that, but... Yeah, I only have a few minutes left, Frank. Tell us, Mm -hmm. before I let you go, um, I mean, I could talk to you for hours, and it's it doesn't matter the topic. It's just the passion you have for it to do right by a man who had this moral compass. And God bless you for what you did. Tell us, teach the audience, why is he buried in New York City on 122nd Street rather than at Washington, D.C.? Does that relate to the man and his moral compass? You know, Grant is in New York. Uh, because the last four years of his life, he lived in New York City. He invested all the family's money, basically, in a firm called Grant and Ward. The Grant in that name was his son, Ulysses Jr. Unfortunately, the partner, Ward, was conducting what we would call Ponzi schemes or pyramid schemes. This blows up. The firm goes under in 1884. The entire Grant family finds themselves several thousands of dollars in debt. Grant is struggling. The last year of his life is a race against death, as it turns out, because he's diagnosed with uh, throat cancer soon into this undertaking to write his memoirs. And 1884 to 85, that's what his uh, his life is about, is he's living uh, on 3 East 66th Street, just off Central Park. Hmm. 
as he's on his deathbed racing to complete his memoirs, he tells his son, Fred, when he asks about his uh, burial site, well, Grant's preference would have been West Point, but because of his love for his wife, his devotion to his wife, and the restriction against women being buried at West Point, he named New York, Illinois, and St. Louis. He named three homes that he had during his adult life as places where he would like to be considered for burial. And what Mayor William Grace of New York was the first to come up with an attractive uh, option for the Grant family, this high point, not the highest point of Manhattan, but one of the higher points in what was then the new Riverside Park uh, mm. overlooking the Hudson River. But his burial in New York was controversial. There were measures, uh, there, were, there was even a congressional resolution that was proposed, never uh, was actually passed, suggesting his burial in Washington, D.C. or at Arlington Cemetery. Uh, but but those same Grant, Southern uh, guys that were pissed at him for conquering slavery pretty much were still around trying to tarnish his legacy, right? I mean, that's really why in school, unlike Frank Scaturo, the rest of us don't learn about what a great man he was carrying out Lincoln's wishes because he was really being tarnished because they were so upset that he actually carried out what Lincoln really wanted. That's what I find so fascinating about this guy. And the fact that he wanted to be buried next to his wife, and you couldn't do that at West Point or in Washington, it's just amazing. I, I just think it's a story of a man, which I guess is why you're so in love with the story and so passionate about it, because of what a great man he really was. Yeah, besides being so accomplished, he was a good man. Uh, yes. I mean, you have the goodness accompanying the greatness. Yeah. Well, you got it too, Frank. And I, I mean, I can, again, I can talk to you for hours, and I just really wanted to showcase your book, your work, and if people do go to New York, to really put this on the schedule, the itinerary, to visit and learn more about a man that we really, up until now, don't know enough about. So... Thank you for all that you've done. You've really made the world a better place, certainly here in America, for us to really speak up about a guy who held true to that moral compass. Thanks so much for making time to be with us this morning, Frank. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. This is a real pleasure. All right, young man. Keep in touch, and I make sure everybody learns about your book. Where can they learn more about? Do you have a website, uh, your book? Before you leave, yeah. tell us where we can go. Go to grantstomb.org, uh, mm -hmm. no apostrophe, grantstomb.org is the website of the Grant Monument Association. You can find out what's happening at the tomb, upcoming events, our appeals to uh, Congress. We're looking to get Grant a posthumous uh, promotion, which you can read more about. Good. And uh, we have a forthcoming book, Grant at 200, that Savas Beatty will be releasing, will be publishing this fall. Great. Frank? Thanks so much for making time. I know this is a bit unusual for you to be on a sports station, but you know what? New ears are going to be hearing all the great work you've done, and for me, that's a great pleasure. Thanks again, Frank. It's an honor for me. Thanks so much. Okay, God bless you. That is awesome. And I'm glad he came on, and I'm glad you got to hear a man passionate about a good man. That's, we don't get enough of these stories. Coming up next... I'm going to open the clinic, and i got to tell you a story about a meniscus repair that should not have been done the way it was done, and now i got to go and fix it. 
I'll explain the difference between repairing the meniscus versus trimming it and when it's appropriate. The number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. What's going on? It's Max. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday morning than with my friend Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. You're not going to leave me alone, are you? Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. The Grand Poobah, the Big Kahuna. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Great Tracy Chapman. One of the greatest to write songs, to sing songs. And make sure you listen like we did last week to Pavarotti and Tracy Chapman singing Baby Can I Hold You Tonight. Oh, my God. Before I get into my own clapper vision about what to do with your meniscus, we should unload some of the calls. Uh, who do you want to take next, uh, Will? We have a fellow doctor. A no. One Dr. Neal is calling for you. Dr. Neal, you're on with Dr. Clapper. How can I help? Hi, Dr. Clapper. I listen to you every uh, four weeks when I get my hair cut. Um, so this is the four weeks. My son, Neil, also, uh, is in Germany. He's 31, mm-hmm. kind of a desk jockey, works for Obisoft, helping develop games in a management position. So I had to start walking 30 minutes to and from work, and he's probably only walked a couple blocks before. His knee started hurting. Mm-hmm. So he went to a doctor in Germany. Uh, they did an MRI. Uh, in about five minutes, they told him he had a plica, mm-hmm. and he needed surgery. Okay. Uh, not had any physical therapy or anything else, so he got kind of scared and said, I'll get a second opinion. Okay. And now we're scrambling to try to understand it. Okay. Do you listen to the show? You know what Clapper Vision is? Yes. All right. So I'm going to give you a Clapper Vision of what a plica is and why your son should not have surgery. Okay. Okay. And promise me they're not going to talk you into an injection of stem cells, PRP, cortisone, or other. No needles going into your son's knee, okay? I'm okay with that. I was sort of way against uh, steroids, but uh, right. the rest of the stuff I thought was useless. Yeah, stay away. It's not necessary. And it's just to take money out of your wallet for this, certainly. There's a book that I wrote with Lindy Yui called Heal Your Knees. You should get a copy. You'll enjoy reading it. Okay. It'll educate you and your son. It'll help. But basically, the knee, when the baby, the, the mom is pregnant and the baby is forming, we call that embryology, right? The embryo is about to become a fully-fledged human being. The heart, we're very aware, has four chambers, right? The ventricles down below, the atrium, two, two and two. There's four chambers in the heart. Well, believe it or not, your knee, our knee, has chambers in it when you're an embryo. And with time, there is a beautiful breakdown, resorption of these chambers that remain in your heart. You need the four chambers in your heart, but you don't need these separate chambers in your knee. You really need the underneath the kneecap and the big toe and little toe side of the joint to become a water balloon. You need it to be a single encapsulated joint with fluid. But embryology says that when it first forms, 
it has a series of chambers, which look, literally look, is a clapper vision, like a bunch of grapes. And as we develop, the grapes break their wall and ultimately become a single grape, a single water balloon that's your knee joint. So the plica is a remnant of embryology. And in 15% of the population, we can still see when we arthroscope someone's knee, we can see the remnant of that old chamber called a plica. Does that make sense? Capiche? Yes, capiche. The location of this remnant is interesting to me because it is up and to the side, on the big toe side, the medial side, of where the kneecap likes to glide in the groove called the trochlea on the thigh bone, the femur. There's a valley there, and the reason there's a valley there rather than a flat surface is because the undersurface of our kneecap actually has a ridge in it. So if you feel your, your knee right now, right under the skin, feel your kneecap. It feels flat, like a cookie, like a poker chip, right? But actually, the inside of the kneecap the other side, not the one that's under the skin, but the inside of the kneecap in the joint is not flat. It actually has a ridge. Why does it have a ridge? Because the male-female connection of the ridge is into the valley, which is on the femur. And the reason that valley and ridge meet each other is so that your kneecap doesn't dislocate. We watch Patrick Mahomes on the football field literally have his kneecap dislocate. It went off to the side. It came off track, if you will, probably because he has too shallow of a valley or not enough of a ridge. There's all kinds of reasons that people get kneecaps that dislocate. But the the remnant of that chamber, the plica, is right next to where the kneecap ridge rides in that groove. So who ends up needing their plica removed. Very few people, but some people really get a plica that's painful. You know who does? People who bike ride incessantly. If they are one of the 15% of the population, which actually has a very thick and prominent plica that remains repetitively on that bike, that rare case will actually have a thickening and an inflamed plica as their only source of pain. I can tell you right now, your son may be far away from you and me because he's in Germany, but I got some clapper vision, and I can see inside his knee right now, and as we say in New York, forget about it. This guy don't need his plica removed. Thank you very much. So the other thing that it's telling me is, because they would love, I don't care whether it's France, Germany, or Downey, California, wherever it is, We don't get paid to talk to people. We get paid to do procedures. The reality is, is if ever there was a diagnosis, and I'm sure his meniscus and his ligaments are okay because they would have jumped all over that. So what you do when you make a diagnosis of a plica with knee pain that just happened, you got to forget about it and go do some exercises. Strengthen the quad. Strengthen the vastus medialis obliquus, one of the key muscles of the quad. Strengthen your hamstrings. Strengthen your calf muscle, the powerful muscles above and below the joint. You need to do some therapy before anybody's allowed to arthroscope and muck around in your knee, removing your plica, which is probably not the source of his pain. Okay? Does that help? 
Got it. Oh, that's great. So do me a favor. You're a total stranger to me. I just helped you and your son. You need to find two people today, total strangers, and do something nice for them. That's how you'd be thanking me, all right? I do that regularly. All we'll right, look for man. someone today. Do it special today. Thank just you. for me. God bless you, and thanks for calling okay. in. All right, Warriors. I got time. Not really. <laughs> Already we're, we're cutting it to the edge. Let's talk about what we're going to do next week. My guest next week, I'm so excited to talk to him. His name is Christian Fabrizio, and he's a trainer. He's a world-class athletic trainer, but he's a whiz kid. He knows all about nutrition. He knows all about the right way and the wrong way to train people. And it made me start to think already, where in the world of art, where in the world of sports do we see that value of a trainer really shaping someone to become better at what they do in an art way and in a sports way? And I can certainly tell you about in a surgical way. Well, the greatest fighter of my lifetime, and I watched Muhammad Ali, but there's no doubt the most feared fighter in my lifetime was Mike Tyson. But Mike Tyson will be the first one to tell you. In fact, whenever he starts talking about his trainer, Customato, this big, strong iron Mike can't hold it. He starts crying. The love that he had for this basically surrogate father who rescued him from the mean streets of Bushwick, Brooklyn, was Customato. But what was the secret of how Customato trained Mike Tyson? And what about in the world of art? Oh, my God, this one's going to be a good one. One of the greatest groups that I enjoyed listening to, one of the most pure voices ever to sing a song, was Karen Carpenter, who sadly passed away from anorexia. And her brother, who wrote the songs, arranged the music, and did all of that, now is left without one of the greatest voices. Forget about that. It's his sister. It's his partner, his writing partner, his singing partner. What does he do? He wants to carry on in the world of music. So he's got to train other people to sing the songs that his sister used to sing at a level that nobody could come close to. Well, wait till you hear how Richard Carpenter trained a symphony, trained Diane Warwick, trained other singers to come close to what he heard from Karen Carpenter. There is a skill set in training that's more than you think, and that I can't wait to get into. And don't forget... This topic that starts with Ulysses S. Grant carrying out the anti-slavery laws of Lincoln, Keenan Ivory Wayans going up against the big networks and making Barry Diller and Peter Chernin realize that it's not the home shopping club, it's the homeboy home shopping club. What a genius he was, is, he's still alive, thank God, he's 63 but also Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey. So as I relate it to food, Good Time Donuts in Ventura. There's a donut that reminds me of all of this topic because she is someone special. But get yourself a chocolate-covered chocolate icing 
with white coconut on top. It'll change your life this weekend. Until then, I'll leave you with Volari, which means I'm singing and I'm flying. And until next week, I'll see you on the radio.